This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 we Toronto. We will attempt to get Olivia Chow in studio. We will. Because the, the invite is always there. That's for sure. Seems lovely. Actually, when they asked when they asked all the candidates, tell us what you're listening to on your iPod right now. That was a, uh, a Joe Cressy uh, number. He decided to uh, bring some levity because things were getting a little hot under the collar. And not everyone was wearing collars. Um, and Joe said, what are you listening to? And Olivia Chow started playing. I'm so excited by the Pointer Sisters on her phone. True story. I witnessed it. Now, I don't I don't want to suggest that that um, that the Chow team is saying, hey, if you get asked this, say I'm so excited by the Pointer Sisters. But she was the only one that had it right away on her phone. It must be on there somewhere. It has to be. Um, I'm a big jump for my love guy, but if she's, I'm so excited, I can, I can get with that. Um, really quick. Cause I want to play you this from uh, Doug Ford on Bonnie Crombie yesterday. I don't know what's going on here. I'm going to play you Nate Erskine Smith on Bonnie Crombie from our show yesterday. If you missed it. And then, um, Doug Ford on Bonnie Crombie. The one comment makes sense. The other feels like, I, I don't know what's going on here. Like the, the, that, the Ford Crombie thing, I'll get to it in a second. Um, the Chow issue is going to be really interesting. And I had somebody tell me yesterday who who should, by, by ideology, vote for Olivia Chow. He should. But he doesn't like her as a, as a front-facing person with her skills. That's, this is absolutely somebody that should align with Olivia Chow, should agree on uh, eight of ten things easily, maybe eight and a half. And... He, he thinks it's one of two things, perhaps. Do you not realize that you're not terribly great at the front facing stuff? That's fine if you do or don't. But if you get elected and people realize that you're not the front facing person they want you to be, are they going to run for the hills? Are they out of are they out of Toronto? Is this a person that's fantastic in the back room? And this is what I have heard about Olivia Chow. Fantastic in the back room. Recommending, like this is the the uh, the person in the, in the GM's office for the Leafs or the Raptors. Great with stats. Great recommending trades. Fantastic. Can you put them in front of the camera and can you have them explain why they, they don't want to re-sign Austin Matthews? That's a hypothetical. I'm not saying the Leafs want to or want to do that. And then when she wins, what happens from there? I don't have all those answers, um, but but the way that person described it was Olivia plays small ball, like like singles up the middle. This is not a home run hitter when you need somebody front facing to hit home runs, and it's up to you to decide who is, and it's up to you to decide if she is, but that, I won't say it jarred me a little bit, but it, it got me a little bit that that was the case talk more about it as the morning continues that's for sure um nate erskine smith was on our show yesterday he put into the ring for ontario liberal leadership he's a beaches east york uh, mp um bonnie crombie said she would govern right of center she would take the liberal party spinning past the middle slightly right of center people were surprised by that this was not an accident she didn't just say it to me she said it to almost everybody else she spoke to on tuesday when she was out and about that's going to appeal to some people. Look, nothing's universal. Here's what Erskine Smith said about Bonnie Crombie's comments. I am not leaving a progressive federal liberal party to protect an unambitious status quo. So if I leave the Ontario Liberals, we are not going to govern from the center right. I'm not going to suggest affordable child care is too far left or block housing from being built. Obviously, we're going to have a strong economic agenda focused on productivity and people's lives. Housing is a good example. It's not only a, a fairness challenge, it's also an economic productivity challenge. If you look at climate action, it's not only about protecting the planet for our kids, it's also about good jobs today. But when I hear that investments in health and investments in childcare are too far left, I also wonder, is reducing poverty and helping people in the greatest need too far left? Is saving lives in the opioid crisis too far left? And, you know, of course, any social progress, I'm a liberal, any social progress needs to be on a firm and fiscally sustainable footing for it to be lasting progress. Of course, we need a strong economic agenda that includes childcare, by the way, but we don't need a center-right government. We already have one, Greg. (laughs) (laughs) You do. Um, uh, And by the way, if you say you're going to govern right of center, to me, one of two things is taking place here. You are right of center. That's great. You can be right of center. But you're saying you're right of center. 
Don't tell me you want to govern right of center if you aren't right of center. That makes you... I don't think this is the case with Bonnie. I really don't. I, I, there's nothing, there's a lot to like about Bonnie Crombie. But if you say you're governing right of center, you are right of center. If you are pointing out that some of the decisions Kathleen Wynne made about Ontario, um, she she references health care, dental benefits, and her quote, those are better delivered by other levels of government. The province is supposed to deliver health care. Who else is supposed to handle health care? Um, so we can debate the start that she had. She wants to, you know, bang it hard in the 905 and get seats away from the conservatives. And maybe she is well equipped to do that. Here's what uh, Doug Ford, um, can't keep, this is, you know, um, this is Chris Rock, uh, Will Smith telling Chris Rock, keep my wife's name out of your mouth. Doug Ford can't keep Bonnie Crombie's name out of his mouth. Well, my, my first reaction is what took you so long? She's been campaigning for five years. My second reaction is bring it on. This is all about Bonnie Crombie's political, uh, you know, agenda. It's not about the people of Mississauga. You can't be running for mayor or being mayor and running for a leader. Like, you know, you can't put your butt on both sides of the fence. Um, He did exactly that. Maybe covered a little less geographical ground, um, but Doug Ford's butt was on... um I don't want to use that phrase ever again. Doug Ford's butt was on two sides of the fence when he was a counselor and running for mayor and then being a counselor and running for um, after not winning uh, the mayoralty. He ran when Patrick Brown was gone as Ontario PC leader. So these things do happen. I'll take Ford's point um, at face value. It will be difficult with all that Mississauga has to do the next seven months. Like, no, but like there isn't seven or nine months to spread yourself out all, all over Ontario. Bonnie wants to attract rural voters. We had Nader Smith on. We just played that for you. He's gone up to northern Ontario, and he's made connections. So there's a little bit of a catch-up game for Bonnie Crummy to play. I'm not saying she can't play it. I'm convinced one of the two will be the Ontario Liberal leader. But you, you, you hear two very distinct, I think, two distinct ideologies from both of them and they and both want to separate from the NDP there's that also like like don't get the NDP uh lobby confused with what the liberals want to do and that was a huge problem last spring you know it and I know it and the liberals know it they know it this is Toronto today with Greg Brady Toronto's news today's talk 6:40 Toronto and our next guest um finished basically the fourth into the fifth hour of debating when I left And then he went to Scarborough with the other five candidates and debated at the U of T Scarborough campus. So uh, close to six hours of debating. And there's another one uh, tonight. Brad Bradford's joining us uh, in studio. Was that that felt a bit like prom? You don't really get to dance. There isn't a kiss at the end of the night. That's for sure with the other five candidates. But it must have been exhausting. How were you by how are you with like 10 minutes left in last night's debate holding up? Well, you know what? Uh, we were engaged and um, having a lot of fun. That was an important conversation out in Scarborough. It was a triple header of debates. I don't know if that's ever happened before in, in any election. Um, but, you know, it's good. People are starting to tune in and engage mm-hmm. in the fact that there are so many debates on the calendar. I think that's an important part of any mayoralty. And candidates need to be out there sharing their views and positions on the state of the city and the way forward. When you ran for councillor, were there that many in-person debates? And I'll tell you why I asked, because when people run for even uh, MP or MPP out, out in Ajax, where I live, I mean, I feel like I'd hear if there were debates and and you know public th- there are public things and meetings and come meet this particular candidate and here's a rally but there isn't a lot of the format had you done a lot of that format for for people challenging you for city council or, or even when you ran the first time in 2018 it's interesting 2018 there was probably five or six debates uh 2022 in the fall i think we did two or three uh it's mm-hmm. harder on a on a riding basis because you're relying on community organizations to stand that up, uh, residents, associations. And so the apparatus and the support is probably smaller to put that on. It's all volunteers. Mm-hmm. Yesterday, we had uh, the Toronto Arts Council hosting. We had the building sector hosting where, where you were a, a panelist. And then in the evening, um, University of Toronto Scarborough and Scarborough organizations. So there's more apparatus to support the debates. It's a lot of work putting these things on. But in the mayoralty and going across the city, of course, uh, there are more hands to do the lifting. You're the only one that plugged a, uh, a local musician and gig when Joe Gressy said, what are you listening to right now? What, who's that act again and where are they playing? 
Uh, that's the Stephen Stanley band. You could have said anything, and the audience would have been like, "Oh yeah, that's yeah, no. check that out. But it's a real, it's a real band. Stephen Stanley band, <laughs> and uh, those guys, uh, East End legends. They were lowest of the low in the nineties, of course, with Ron yeah, Hawkins. That's right. All right, all right. Yeah, so so they're playing a show here Saturday night, and uh, if I can get out there, I always like to support those guys. They're locals, and I see them in the neighborhood all the time. You feel younger for lowest of the low because you weren't in college in the late nineties, and I was. So you yep. feel that feels younger for you where you'd see them every weekend or odds would play or pursuit of happiness or those kind of bands. Yeah. You know, full, uh, Our lady peace, full disclosure, wasn't listening to them as much when at the five. time. Uh, yeah. sort of <laughs> discovered them, I guess a little bit later in life, but, uh, mm-hmm. I actually know those guys from the neighborhood and, um, they're always out at the park or, you know, uh, at a local pub, having a beer, playing music in the street. And uh, I've had the opportunity to kind of connect with them through the work I did on the Toronto Music Advisory Committee. And so, you know, there's so many fantastic artists here in Toronto. You don't have to go far to find good music. Housing's your background. Housing's your passion. So that's the debate I'm at yesterday. Um, do things come along in, in a debate like that? And did you do you get everything in that you want to get in? It is, it, it's got so many complexities because eventually we started talking about building permits and cutting red tape. And we were into issues like, well, transit and safety and and the homelessness problem. Like there's so much that's interconnected about what housing is. Yeah, it's it's actually goes back to affordability first and foremost. And the idea that if you want to live here uh, in the city, we want to have you. And I, of course, believe that. You know, I, I grew up in Hamilton and I kind of make the joke like I don't want people to have to move to Hamilton if they don't want to. And yet we have seen a flight of particularly young folks over the past couple of years moving further out in the GTA. And your conversation this morning on return to office and how we get people back in the yeah. downtown core, it, it it is related to the housing challenge because the further people move away, the gridlock that has ground this city to a halt, uh, it makes it very unappealing for people to come back to work. And yet that is essential for the way forward of the city for our economy, for the vibrancy. We can talk about office conversion as well. That's part of my policy is is converting some of that vacant office space here in Toronto to ha- to housing uh, because of the housing crisis. So how di- tell me how difficult that is because I read I read Josh Rubin's article and he makes the case and the people he talked to make the case. Sometimes it's better just to flatten. The, sometimes an office space can't easily be converted to um, housing or apartments or condominiums. Sometimes it can. But how easy is it to do with regulations and that red tape and permits? How easy is it to do? Because I think we're going to have to do some of that in the city and you'll want to do it faster than slower, I think. That's right. You nailed it. There's two components to it. One is the practical uh, exercise of actually converting office space and a commercial office space floor plate, not to get too into the weeds, but it is bigger. It's different than a residential floor plate. So, you know, the water and the services are going up through the 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 central elevator corridor, you know, you need to be able to get that out into the different units. So it's different construction and you need to make sure that those units will have access to windows. Again, you think about an office floor plate, you might be in a cubicle in the middle of the office and not have access to windows. So that's different for residential, but there's a lot of historic older office space that does have a smaller floor plate. It could be converted. And, you know, to my mind, if there is even an opportunity for a couple thousand residential units that we could convert and make better use of that space, then that's worth the effort. The other side of it is is the bureaucracy and the red tape. And right now we make it almost impossible to even explore the idea of office conversion. And yet you've seen the numbers um, very conservatively, 20% vacancy, but that's because nobody wants to be honest and acknowledge that those numbers are closer to 35 40% 40% vacancy. So how the come the numbers are, is that just a survey and, and companies want to say, yes, I've got most people back, but they really don't. Right. I saying? mean, if you're in the commercial real estate sector and you're trying to b- drive a bargain on a lease, you don't really want to say, actually, yeah, I have a ton of space available. Uh, that's not going to help you secure. Oh, these sound like realtors that say, hey, there's 38 people that want this it's, house. You better move fast, right? That's, this that's is what's exactly happening. right. Okay, so, so I think the number that's floated by the industry is, is you know, maybe 20%. But if you actually talk mm-hmm. to folks in the sector, it's closer to 40 
40. And and you could see it. I mean, you could shoot a cannon down the main streets in, in Toronto on Monday yeah. and Friday. There's nobody here. And so if that is going to be a version of reality on a go-forward basis, we need to think about how we can get more people down in the downtown core, supporting local businesses, adding to vibrancy, taking transit, all the stuff that's important for Brad, Toronto's economy. Brad Bradford's with us on uh, Toronto Today. We'll have another segment with him, but I got about 90 seconds here. Tell me how... That manifests itself that let's say I own office space. What's my first move if I say I can't, this isn't going to work long term? I've got some wiggle room and some time. How can I get started converting it to residential? What are, what are my first moves? When I'm elected as mayor, I will make it as of right where you can come in with an application for a permit. You don't have to go through a rezoning. We will allow the conversion of office to residential provided you are providing 20% affordable in that exercise. And again, there's dollars to be saved in this. And mm-hmm. so we want to secure some affordability. But that is my my whole mantra here. Streamline the process, make it easier to get to the housing outcomes. Let's not get caught up in years and years of the spin cycle and, and you know back and forth on approvals. Make it as of right. If you want to do it, we want to help facilitate that. And let's go. Uh, Brad Bradford, City Councilor, running for mayor. I'm just looking around this room. We were talking about a rezoning um, uh, office for residential. Just even in the studio, I think the studio you get about twenty eight hundred a month for it. I really do. I think we put a kitchen in the corner there. Well, a tub. I like a, t- a bath instead of a shower in the morning. Put a tub against the door where Jamie's sitting. Pretty prime. Jamie, you're not in the tub actually, but whatever. Pretty prime real estate down. This here is on great. The waterfront. Oh, you yeah. got a great view of people walking by, and uh, well, that guy's smoking outside. That's not. That's not a great thing to wake up to. But whatever. Whatever. We can make it work. Live work units. There you go. <laughs> Um, the, the whole process of this, what are, you, what are you learning right now? What are you learning about yourself and this process? I'm sure you have zero regrets. You're on stage. You're getting, you know, people are applauding. Um, you're, you're the youngest candidate on stage yesterday of the six. What are you, what are you gathering in, in your own brain about this process? You know what? It's actually been such an enlightening journey over the past couple of months going across all 640 square kilometers of this big city and listening to thousands of Torontonians. And what it's illustrated to me is just how disconnected City Hall is from everyday people. The the echo chamber of council, the echo chamber of, of Twitter and social media does not reflect the lived experience of thousands of Torontonians. They are struggling with affordability. They're struggling with housing, with community safety, um, with the gridlock that's ground the city to a halt. And yet we spend our time caught up in debates about whether or not we should rename Smart Track Station Smart Track. Nobody cares. They just want transit built. We spend time, you know, rehashing debates from 2015 about whether or not we should tear down the gardener. Meanwhile, we've already spent hundreds of millions of dollars literally rebuilding it. And, you know, it's never Mm. been harder to get around the city. So it's illustrated to me that disconnect between the politicians at City Hall, the people who want to be there, yesterday's leaders trying to position themselves to solve tomorrow's problems. And uh, that's not what the city needs. We need less talk, more action, fresh leadership, and someone who's not afraid to make a decision and drive the city forward. That's why I'm running for mayor. And it's I, I've never been more uh, crystal clear, laser-focused, and mission-driven than I am right now. With the right mayor, do you now have a council that's you know newer, fresher ideas, that's less likely? You used the word yesterday during the debate. We punt things sometimes. There must be times you've driven home, uh, or you, or when you were doing it remotely, and you're like, even something as simple because you, you and I talked about even drinking in parks. You're like, why can't we make a call on this? Why does this get just delayed a year? There's, there's, you're probably driving away, going, why did we send that down the road? Why couldn't we just spend an extra 15 minutes and figure it out today, right? Yeah, and and you know what, the the political posturing that goes on for all of these issues, that's actually the big problem. The joke I make is the best way to get reelected for so many of these politicians is to do nothing at all. That's the joke at City Hall. And you look at some of these politicians who have been there for decades, and I agree that it's, it's public service and everybody wants to make a positive difference in their community. But you can also see it. You know, I saw it when I was city staff working in the chief planner's office. Uh, I've been on council now four years. That's long enough to diagnose the problem that 
we we really do need less talk and more action. These folks are are happy to defer, to delay, to punt difficult decisions. And as a result, the city is in a, in, de, in a decline. As a result, the city is at a breaking point because Torontonians are not getting the type of action that they need on the issues that matter most around affordability and safety and unlocking the gridlock. So I asked you yesterday of your mayor what people's property tax percentage would be. Um, reiterate for the audience what you do with property tax. Well, um, I'm, I'm fighting for affordability and I will keep property taxes at the rate of inflation or below. You know, Torontonians cannot afford, um, you know, Olivia Chow's property tax agenda. I, I've been putting the number out there, 20% property tax increase from Olivia Chow. You were there yesterday. You asked the question, uh, Olivia, how high are you going to raise people's taxes? How expensive are you going to make it to live in this city? And she won't answer the question. Last night uh, at the City TV debate, uh, Cynthia Mulligan asked the exact same question. Stole my question. Yeah, she did. Well, you know, you teed it up for her. <laughs> and Olivia Chow spent 60 seconds burning the clock, not answering the question. And I came back and I said, Olivia, that's all great. We all want a caring and compassionate city. I agree with that. But you are running for mayor. You need to be crystal clear with Torontonians just how expensive you're going to make it uh, to live in this city. And what is the number? I have it at 20% based on your campaign platform commitments. That's the math that we have done for her campaign. But it's really on her, to be honest with people. And I think that's important. You really think, like by the fall, going into 2024, she'd stand in front of a, a microphone and camera and announce, let's even let's even shave it a little bit. Let's say she finds some money somewhere. You think Olivia Chow would tell Torontonians Torontonians, your taxes are going up 15%, 16%. You don't think there's any other way she can do it? There are two outcomes. Either Olivia is not going to follow through on her campaign commitments and promises to Torontonians, or she is going to strap your tax bill to a rocket ship and send it into outer space. There's there's only two outcomes. And there's no other candidate you'd say taxes would be that high with? Not not based. Well, you know what? There are other candidates that are putting a lot of promises <laughs> okay. in the window okay, okay. for sure. Uh, but, you know, Olivia Chow is uh, she's putting a lot out there and she's not telling people how she's going to pay for it. So that is just the reality. She has all of these boutique taxes that she's relying on, whether that's municipal land transfer tax or the vacant home uh, tax. I mean, we're doing the numbers. We're looking at what is the possible revenue that could come in from that. And the reality is there is a massive gap from what she is telling people and what is the likely scenario of the revenue that will be generated. So naturally, the way you make up that shortfall is you're going to have to go back to the taxpayer and ask them to pay more. And for the mm -hmm. average homeowner in Toronto, it's more than $700 a year in additional taxes. And you know, right now, families are literally fighting to put food on the table. It's never been more expensive to live in this city. And Olivia Chow will jack your taxes and add to that burden. So if your taxes are $3,500, I mean, 700 is a straight 20% of, uh, so, so that there's your 20% right yeah, there. You'll, you'll be paying 4,200 plus on the average uh, Torontonian um, property mm. tax bill. And, and, and I would remind folks, if you're a renter and more than 50% of the people in this city, of course, are renting, I rented when I first moved here, that gets passed right through to you as well. It's sometimes lost on folks, but, but property tax increases do get passed through to tenants. And so it will, it will literally make life more expensive for everybody in the city at a time when affordability has never been more challenging. That's the wrong way to go for the city. A couple quick hitters. Um, uh, Global News had a story yesterday about the World Cup and whether or not the province was sort of wavering. Uh, it was described as painstaking deliberations as to whether or not to pitch in and help pay for it. You and I have talked about this before. Um, BMO Field, if this was, I know you love your NFL. If this was an NFL stadium and it was just set like Arrowhead in Kansas City or, or Dallas where the Cowboys play, so much of this wouldn't be an issue. But millions of dollars have to go into BMO Stadium to expand this. If the province doesn't kick in, who pays for it? Well, we have to reduce the risk for Toronto taxpayers. And, you know, I, I think the model in, in Vancouver is a good one. The hotel We're, tax. That's right. Jesus. Like we got to find, we got to find pr practical solutions to, to address this. Uh, it is a big bill. All three levels of government do have to be at the table on this. And, and frankly, the frustrating thing for Toronto or for local government is a lot of the revenue that's going to be generated from this, of course, 
will benefit other levels of government with increased spending. And FIFA. Yeah, yeah, and FIFA, of course. They, <laughs> always, not, they don't do things cheaply. They always take their pound of flesh, don't they? Do. they? Uh, so, you know, recognizing that both the province and the federal government are going to see a significant increase in, in revenue, the taxes, the dollars that are going to be spent, um, we need to make sure they're at the table. But Vancouver is showing leadership on this, and I think that's something that we need to explore here in Toronto. The city can't be left holding the bag for this, that's for sure. Yeah, I think there's still time to, to put a, a tax in next year or do something uh, about it. Um, we got about a minute left, but the the pride the pride parade um, insurance costs they need more policing. Some people will find that ironic, but that's what they're saying. They they do need that because the event has grown. It's swelled. Obviously, it's the biggest in the country. It's the second biggest in North America. So when I see that the fireworks are back on for July first, and people are worried about money for that. Pride Parade, Caribbean Carnival is going to cost money. Like we still need to fund these fun things. I know people would say, let's not do that because there's people without homes. Let's not do that because there's people we need, you know, safety on transit. These are still important things to the fabric of the city. Let's look at the Raptors parade. You can't not have some. If the Leafs had won the Stanley Cup this year, somehow, Brad, we'd have to fund a parade. We cannot have a parade when the Leafs win the first damn Stanley Cup in in 57 years. We can't do it. I was going to say, I think in the Leafs instance, every 57 years we can find the money. But uh, <laughs> We'd pay it off for the next 57 years, <laughs> but right. yeah, yeah, we, we hope they don't win again. That. Yeah, you know what? Look, the pandemic's over, right? The pandemic is over, and City Hall needs to be laser-focused on the future. We can't keep using that as a crutch. Like, oh, wow, we haven't done that for a couple of years. We are, you know, the capital city here in the province. We're the biggest city in the country. Uh, it is so important to celebrate Canada Day. We need to be out there bringing folks together, bringing people back downtown, right? All of that vibrancy Huge. and making yeah. sure that we're stepping up and flexing a bit as Toronto, as this this powerhouse city that we are. And, and the mm. idea that we're, we're not going to do the fireworks in Nathan Phillips Square. I know we are now, uh, but that was embarrassing. You know, like, let's get it together. And these are, it's a great example of of the leadership void uh, and the bureaucrats at City Hall that have sort of lost the plot on How's that call get made? And when, then why does it change in 24 I, I hours? I suspect that was, you know, what they call delegated authority. Yeah. Um, but you know what? It's, it is emblematic of what we've seen over the past couple of years. Um, too many decisions are are being driven by folks who are not elected by the people. And uh, I'll be a strong mayor of action. You're going to see strong leadership at City Hall once I'm elected. All right. There's Brad Bradford. Watch your vote. Thanks for coming in. We'll, we'll uh, do it in the next couple of weeks for sure. We got a long way to go. Love it. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's News. Today's Talk. 640 Toronto. Our next guest wrote something so interesting in the Globe and Mail about um, sort of the template for Ontario Place might be found in Brooklyn, New York. Um, and it was a great read. Um, a bunch of us noticed it and wanted to talk about it. Um, and that's some of why we're having him on. But uh, we always learn a lot with from Alex Bozikovic, uh, Globe and Mail from uh, from the Globe and Mail, uh, architecture critic. And he writes about smart guy with real estate and stuff as well. Um, not all that's on your business card, Alex, but you get the point. <laughs> it wouldn't fit, would it? It wouldn't fit. It wouldn't. No, 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 no. Exactly. Architecture is a big enough word with four syllables. Yeah, four syllables that uh, it's complicated enough. Um, first, I, I want to get to something you wrote about Bonnie Crombie because I thought it was really prescient. And, and you included a quote. She was making the rounds. The one comment, obviously, that people have focused on is that she'd govern the Ontario Liberal Party right of center. And that raised some eyebrows. It brought a response from, I'd say, the other leading candidate, Nate Erskine Smith. But you'd pulled out a quote and retweeted it. Um, her quote, I'm not going to build shiny towers full of one bedroom apartments along a transit corridor. That's not what I want my city or any city to look like. She's been often criticized as just not having kept up with housing in Mississauga compared to other municipalities. The NIMBY label has been pushed at her. It's been pushed at a lot of politicians, but you do know that this, that's not a great sign. And, and <laughs> to get elected, knowing housing is such a crisis for people, there may need to be a bit of a pivot here. Well, I think so. Um, you know, and I don't want to, what you're speaking about is a tweet, and I don't want to pick, put too much onto one single mm -hmm. comment in a, in a debate. But, you know, I think her record on this has been pretty clear. She has been opposed to, you know, the Ford government's efforts to impose a strong mayor system and has been really, which, you know, is its own thing. But she's been very insistent on the importance of local control. Um, over planning. And what that basically means is saying no to new housing. And I think a lot of politicians here, as elsewhere across North America, have really had to learn a lot over the last decade or so about the housing issue. And, you know, in broad strokes, we basically make apartment buildings illegal in most places, and we have not built a lot of new housing. 
And those facts are pretty simple, but um, they're difficult to get your head around if you have come of age, you know, at a time when, you know, developers are bad, housing is bad, you know, change is bad. And I think a number of things that Crombie has said suggest that that's her mindset. And I agree. It's not great news. Yeah. And the Globe and Mail has a graph from the summer of 22. And again, it uh, you know, we're more... I suppose, coming out of the pandemic as opposed to in the midst of it. But five cities are listed on the graph um, and outside of Toronto, Mississauga is the only other Ontario one, like not Brampton, not London, not Kitchener, not Hamilton. And it, it does show neighborhoods are are shrinking and, and people are getting out as opposed to getting in because there's just nowhere to go. This is a tricky thing that a lot of neighborhoods, and this is true in Toronto as well, a lot of neighborhoods are actually losing people. Mm-hmm. And you don't see that because the buildings are still there. But because there are smaller families, because there are more empty nesters than there used to be, because new families have fewer kids, for a lot of reasons, you know, the current buildings that we have, especially houses, aren't housing as many people. And so what we have done to respond to that is to build new housing, mostly in high rises in a few places. And then you've got politicians, including, to some degree, Ms. Crombie, pushing back and saying, well, these towers are not what I want my city to be. These are, you know, who are these for? They're only one-bedroom apartments. You know, they don't fit into the city. And that's a problem because not only are we losing housing effectively or or Mm. is our housing housing fewer people, but, you know, if we're not saying yes to those apartment buildings and those condo towers, we're not really saying yes to anything. And that is the danger for, you know, for all of us going forward. Alex Bozikovic, our guest architecture critic for The Globe and Mail, um, you wrote about uh, Brooklyn Bridge Park, and I loved what you uh, wrote about it because you do note that there has to be uh, a balance here. And uh, as you note, um, the mix of public and private is carefully managed here. And I think that's what we're looking for with Ontario Place. We don't want it too privatized. We want a lot of open land, but we understand that some revenue has to be generated. You looked at this park and thought, Maybe they've done it the right way, and maybe there's a template here. Well, I mean, for me, I'm not actually convinced that there does need to be a lot of revenue generated from it. You know, nobody looks at Algonquin Park and asks, you know, why it's not generating a lot of revenue. But if they are determined, the province is determined to get some money out of Ontario Place, I do think Broken Bridge Park is a good model because what they've done, they are on a very large waterfront site, which used to be a port, is take 10% of it and carve it out for mostly housing and a there's a hotel and there's a essentially a shopping mall. And all of that is along the inland edge of the park. So it's next to the city. And once you get past it, you get into the park, which has a couple of cafes, a little bit of a commercial presence, but is clearly a public park. And that development, which occupies 10% of the site, generates enough money through land leases to pay for almost all of the park's operations. And that's without a, you know, 2,000 spot parking garage. That's without, you know, significant public subsidy. The park pays for itself. So if we, have, we are at the place where Ontario Place needs to pay for itself, you know, taking that for granted, there are other ways to do it. And I think the key is to figure out how to make it generate revenue without destroying the park, which is actually a beautiful park. Yeah, and I know you, I think you and I have talked before about about Navy Pier in Chicago. Of course, there's an element of privatization. There's restaurants. There's a Ferris wheel, but the amount of open terrain. I mean, we can't replicate Chicago. I think it's too late for that, given um, what they built and what we haven't. But at the same time, you made the point. There you go. Yeah, the parking lot is a massive, massive issue. If the spa towers over the entire concept of the project, um, you're not going to get people coming down to go for a jog or bring the kids or or or, or play three on three basketball like it's happening in this Brooklyn park. That's exactly right. And Ontario place now has been a little bit underrated because there are some people, including me who use it. And there are actually Mm -hmm. quite a lot of us, but if you haven't been there since you were a kid and that was 25 years ago or 40 years ago, you don't know what it is now. And that is essentially a park. It's got a couple of old amusement park rides in it that need to go, but it is a park. It's in mostly beautiful shape and it's a beautiful place. And that is something that has value in itself. And if you were to add a little bit of performance space, a couple of restaurants or cafes, you know, decent facilities, new washrooms, then you would have a place that people would love to go to. And that would be for me, that would be good enough.
I think as well, we've got a good spot with with Bud Stage. It opened up on Tuesday night, and I think I I sometimes underestimate. We were talking about it on Tuesday that it is a destination point. Sometimes you'll hear people say, "Well, let's go to a concert. Where is it?" And they're more excited that it's at Bud Stage, and they're less excited if it's at Scotiabank, and they're less excited if it's not in the downtown core. I do think that's a drawing card that works that we can build around. Absolutely. And, you know, the the concert venue is very successful and it kind of steps on the park a lot more than its predecessor did. You know, the old concert venue yeah. form used to be a lot smaller. But even with that in place, there's still a fair amount of land on the East Island that can be converted to parkland. There's some of it which already is, which is now known as the Bill Davis Trail and Trillium Park which is very well used and well loved. And the West Island could be just like that. You know, Um, it's really not that complicated. Mm. And unfortunately, we've gotten ourselves twisted up in figuring out how to introduce something big and exciting on a place that really has tremendous value to the public, more or less as it is. Well, we'll keep our eyes on the Ontario Place file. I think it's a great read, and it's, uh, it, it, it certainly resets maybe what some people are looking for. It's a very emotional uh, debate, for sure. We're going to see where it all goes. Alex, thanks so much for the time today. My pleasure. Alex uh, Bozikovic joining us, architecture critic from The Globe and Mail. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. I know um, over the weekend, May 26, 27, there's going to be uh, something at publichospitalvote.ca and in essence, a referendum about public hospitals, Ontario healthcare. We're having lots of important conversations. Um, I'm seeing Dr. Nancy Olivieri, who's got a beautiful dog with something. It's uh, the dog's not wearing like a sweater, but it's some kind of a kerchief. And but there, she's that dog. He or she is in front of a sign that says stop privatizing our public hospitals. Of course, this is a conversation that we're having in Ontario right now. I'd love to bring on the uh, new Ontario Nurses Association president. She is Erin Aris, and she joins us now on Toronto Today. Erin, it's great to have you on. Thanks for doing this for us. Thanks for having me. Good morning, Greg. What a time to become, (laughs) you know, healthcare might have been in your blood, a passion of yours. And (laughs) what a time to be the newly elected president, because the healthcare conversations are kind of they're kind of fast and furious in our province right now. I'd put it that way. You are absolutely correct. Healthcare is in a place that's uh, really never been before in Ontario. So uh, and not for the better, that's for sure. What are you spotting? What do you spot on the on the ground floor? What are you spotting in your job as a nurse? And, and maybe you could frame this for me, what you saw before the pandemic, during the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic. I know that's a lot of layers, but what are the things that strike you right away and you say, these are my issues, these are my worries? Uh, really, we're seeing um, that Ontario is short 24,000 registered nurses, and that doesn't include uh, RPNs and other healthcare professionals. So we are in a staffing crisis like you would not believe. It is uh, unprecedented at this time. Uh, we are seeing uh, publicly, uh, normally publicly operated facilities become privately operated and an expansion of the private uh, sector in healthcare. We also see uh, compensation is a huge issue for nurses and healthcare professionals. You've talked about agency nurses. Um, I know what they are. You know what they are. But explain to our audience if they're coming in on the ground floor here. uh, What's the distinction between what you do, per se, and an agency nurse? Nursing agencies are private companies, another layer of private health care. An agency nurse is employed by this agency. They become, in effect, like a a substitute teacher would be, but for health care. The difference is that when a hospital needs an agency nurse to fill a nursing shift, it costs two or three times more than it would to uh, the cost to, uh, to supply a staff nurse. And this cost is borne by taxpayers. Is there tension when you work with an agency nurse? There is. There, there is. is. Um, not always, but there is. Um, I hear from nurses uh, every day about this. Um, and I think the solution would be to start rewarding our public sector nurses, uh, compensate them correctly, bring them back into our system uh, so that they can uh, fill the staffing gaps in our hospitals and other healthcare sectors. 
a lot of the criticism towards the Ford government is the idea of a lack of incentives. It's one thing to, you know, cut through some of the bureaucracy, cut through some of the red tape. You know, and I know all the stories of people that have emigrated to this country and have maybe even worked in healthcare in another country and they struggle to get licensed here or they want to attend, you know, a medical school here or or train to be a nurse. And there's there's red tape there. Are you at all confident we can wipe out some of these roadblocks over the next half decade or so? I think it's important to look at the fact that we are 24,000 nurses short in Ontario. That would be just to bring us up to the next lowest average in the, in the country. So I don't think that there are 24,000 internationally educated nurses waiting to, no. to work in Ontario. No, uh, no, there might not be 10,000. I mean, that's that's yeah, a high number. Correct. And then the other thing is that we are taking uh, from Peter to pay Paul. We are uh, siphoning off nurses from other countries and creating another crisis within those countries. Mm. Uh, so it would be better to retain and recruit our own. Um, but that just really hasn't happened in Ontario. Aaron Aris is our guest, uh, the ONA president. Um, here I go. You may have been warned about this. I'm watching stories in British Columbia with an NDP government where um, they're having cancer patients go to Bellingham, Washington. And some people might say, boy, that's I, I wish it wasn't like that because our systems meant not to have that happen. But I bet you for those cancer patients and I bet you for those families they're relieved. Um, I I don't want a United States based healthcare system. I did live there ten years. Um, it's a good place to be sometimes if you've got a job with benefits, but not everybody does. What's your observation of that story? Because you already know that people who have struggles with their health, if it takes too long, they're going to drive to Buffalo and they're going to drive to Michigan and they're going to go where they can go to prolong the quality to either their life period or the quality of their life. When you see that story, how do you react to it? It's very sad that people are having to leave Canada to get timely uh, health care. But we can have timely, excellent quality care for patients in Canada and in Ontario in particular. Um, it would require an investment. We know that in, in Ontario, the Ford government has a $3 billion surplus in their health care spending. Uh, that investment, coincidentally, had they spent that $3 billion, they would have equalized uh, our shortage in nurses. It would have been more than enough to hire uh, 24,000 nurses. Uh, we also know that privatization, like, a, like an American-based system, in Alberta has not been successful. There's a recent study out of Alberta where they you know, mm. proposed the same or in, enacted the same model the Ford government's trying to enact here, and wait times increased, surgical backlogs increased. So uh, for-profit, private system is not the answer. But can I make the case you got an NDP government in British Columbia who's probably going to put more public money, more taxes into healthcare than than a government that's more right of center? I mean, I think that's obvious that they would. And there's them saying we can't handle it anymore. Like our system, it's not the money that's put into the system. It might be the system itself. And every international ranking has us really low, really low for choice, really low for uh, service in a hurry, a surgery in a hurry. Is there any kind of system in Europe you look at and you go, we could tweak this a little bit. We should at least investigate it. People are waiting too long to get well again. There are. There are lots of uh, universal health care systems, one-tier systems in Europe, including Denmark, that has uh, demonstrated that this can be successful. Mm -hmm. uh, what I see, though, the current government and uh, certainly BC inherited uh, a, at least a decade of underfunding in their system. It, it didn't break in a day, and it certainly won't be fixed in a day. Mm. Hey, I want to keep having these conversations. I think they're really important. And I thank you enough. Uh, thank you very much for coming on. And, and it's great that you're at your post. And, and I hope we'll keep talking uh, about these important issues. Healthcare matters to us. We're all going to be there someday, right? We're all going to age. We're all going to we're all going to be in these kind of dilemmas as to what to do. And, and it's important we find some solutions. We need them. We need them.
We do need solutions. Thanks for having me, Greg. You bet. Great to have you on. Aaron Harris, uh, the new ONA president, joining us on Toronto Today. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. I could talk about Tina Turner forever, and I want to talk about it with our next guest, uh, who I'm sure... Loved her equally. We're about the same age. We grew up in the 80s. He even wrote a book, uh, co-authored it called I Want My MTV. And he joins us now on the line. He is Rob Tannenbaum. It's great to have you back on air in Toronto. Um, sometimes we only talk about um, legends when they pass away. But I don't think anyone could argue, Rob, that, um, you know, Tina gave it everything for as long. She had this amazing, amazing second act that lasted a quarter century as a solo artist. Um, and uh, she didn't leave anything on the table. She she just was able to work it and and, uh, and have this amazing run. Yeah, I think that this is... So first of all, uh, good morning, Greg. Morning. Uh, good, good to uh, talk to you again. Uh, this is, this, you know, this isn't just a, a second act story. I think this is the definitive pop music second act story uh, for a couple of reasons. One is the success was so startling in a way, um, not based on her talent, but just because she had been completely forgotten about, written off. And also what she had come out of, you know, she was the more famous of Ike and Tina Turner, but she was not the one who was writing the songs or was in control or, you know, was dictating what was going on. So when she successfully left Ike, who, you know, we can't say too frequently was an abusive SOB, when she left him, I don't think even she thought that she would have uh, the kind of music career that she did uh, later with, you know, absolutely international success and acclaim. And, you know, also apparently it, it, it seems to have sated her because she walked away from it. How often do mm-hmm. pop stars do that? How often do people leave the stage with dignity? Uh, and she did. Well, I mentioned, and I mentioned the 80s, and um, that time, like that summer of 84, I, I, I hear What's Love Got to Do With It on the radio. I'm going to tell you, radio where I grew up, London, Ontario, was very, very white, and white artists did rock. So if Prince was going to, with the rare exception of maybe Michael Jackson with Thriller, but if Prince wanted to be heard on the radio, he couldn't do the stuff on his first two albums. Tina, if she wanted to be heard on the radio, like Let's Stay Together was the first single from that album as an Al Green cover. I'm telling you, I didn't hear it. It didn't. It, I know it charted, but it didn't make the radio. What's Love Got to Do With It was was pop and rock built for guys like me who look like me, and that and it worked. But I would say also. Rock was a like the charts were young artists, right? The Durans, Wham, Cindy Lauper, Billy Idol, Prince, Madonna, Eurythmics, and she was forty five. And we we don't even question a forty five year old having a hit now, Rob. But we did back then, and we didn't care. She was just awesome to all of us. Well, but I think part of her story is that she was ignored in America. You know, she was ignored, written off. Um, you leave your husband who wrote all the songs, Right. nobody's going to look to you to give you a record contract. And what revived her career, really, was Europe. Uh, you know, it's the, the two guys in Heaven 17 who had a side project called BEF, and they recorded uh, Ball of Confusion with her, and uh, Let's Stay Together, the Al Green song, mm-hmm. Ball of Confusion, the Temptation song, and they were both, you know, and they weren't gigantic hits on, on the level of uh, Simply the Best or What's Love Got to Do With It, but it was enough to get her a, a small record contract based in Europe. And, you know, the, the, I wasn't there, but the stories I've heard, uh, Capitol Records in the U.S. didn't want to put out a record. Why, why are we going to work with the, Why are we going to devote uh, our marketing power to this washed-up artist who's not going to sell any records? You know, this is the very old story of the music business not having a clue what they're doing uh, or mm-hmm. understanding what will and won't work. Yeah, and, and you bring that up, and I think about that because the arc doesn't make sense. It sure didn't make sense in the 80s. The arc is, this would never happen with an actor or actress. When you're done as a leading man, leading woman, you're done. It is obvi- You love sports like I do. Never happen in sports. When you can't contribute anymore, we'll put you out to pasture. This was a four, This was a huge marketing push for a 45-year-old artist that, like you said, left an abusive marriage, left her husband, and, um, and the odds were utterly against her. And you couldn't, 
this is pre-internet, pre-everything. I can't, you can't tell a 25-year-old how big Tina Turner was from 1984, basically through 1987. She's in movies with Mel Gibson, the duet with Brian Adams, which you can imagine resonated here. Like, there's no story like it. You know, you mentioned sports. These songs have never gone away, especially simply the best. Yeah. Uh, you know, which I, I mean, to me, it's a little sad because it's, it's not at all one of her better songs. It's but simply not the best, to... Rob, as you, as I was waiting for you to say it first, but I'll say it for you. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's simply the medium. Um, yeah. How often do we see a team win a championship and then, you know, what starts playing over the, the PA? Um, you know, this, this is her life has kind of become a, a metaphor, right? This is, this is a metaphor for persevering despite living in horrible circumstances. And, you know, and, and also let, let me get more specific than that. It, it's not just universal perseverance, although there is that it's also perseverance of being a woman and perseverance of being a woman of color in uh, you know in a world where even your husband is abusive to you and that's a stirring story yeah yeah i rob tannenbaum's joining us uh from new york city uh rock writer and i i like i don't know it's easy to say well there's no everybody the amount of tributes right whether it's beyonce janelle monet that like the amount of Black female artist yesterday, every artist came out and said um, something wonderful about Tina Turner, but there was a road that was paved. There isn't a question. You and I have talked and debated about the Rock Hall before, and influence means everything. But this absolutely opened the door for for black women to rock. And it just wasn't, or to be on MTV. There's that famous David Bowie, Mark Goodman conversation where he challenges him in 1983 and says, there's not enough black artists on MTV. Tina started to shift that paradigm. Yeah, I, one of my favorite tributes uh, was on Twitter uh, from Dionne Warwick. Yeah. Who, uh, who said, um, not only will I miss that eternal ball of energy named Tina Turner, uh, but the entire world world will also find this void in their lives. Eternal ball of en- energy kind of nails it. Uh, and the the other thing that I really liked, the, there was a video I hadn't seen before that popped up on Twitter of the first time Beyonce met Tina Turner. And, you know, she's Beyonce, right? Like what she got to prove. Uh, and she bounces into the room to meet Tina. She's just so ecstatic to meet her. Uh, and, you know, and you're right, like, you know, there were, it was not easy, right? They, the Ike and Tina Turner opened for the Rolling Stones. Um, we remember what kind of a reception Prince got opening for White, White Rock Act. Yeah. I, I'm sure that the, the crowds were not exactly sympathetic. Um, and the transformation out of the Chitlin circuit into the white arena rock era, and then into the MTV uh, new wave era. You know, I mean, that's a, that's a multi-decade transformation. And I, I only got a minute here, but you're just jarring my memory. The next year, who makes a rock album? Aretha Franklin. Who's up with Freeway of Love? Who's on the charts for the first time in ages? Aretha Franklin. There was definitely a template there. Yeah, it's the start of a kind of crossover era uh, of older heritage acts. You know, but this is also, this is the flowering of uh, pop music in the 1980s under MTV, mm-hmm. where, you know, now there's a national uh, radio station, effectively. And if you have one hit song, it's going to make your career. Uh, you know, and in spe- uh, specifically in 1984, uh, that's the year that... Springsteen makes his, uh, you know, his crossover move. I, I mean, I'm, I'm uh, Van Halen. I'm drawing a little bit of a blank, but she was part of that 1984 transformation where heritage acts or, you know, acts that were not on top 40 all start making these fantastic pop songs and taking over the charts. Yeah, with videos also. Hey, so much, uh, so much I could get to with you. I, I love hearing your voice on this. Thanks very much for the time today, Robin. I hope you're well. Thanks, Greg. Good talking to you. Awesome to have you. Rob uh, Tannenbaum, rock writer in New York City on Tina Turner's career, life, and legacy.